brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that sends 5% of your monthly plan price to your favorite charity. No contracts, nationwide coverage, risk-free guarantee. Learn more at CharityMobile.com. By way of short introduction, today we have a reflection from Monsignor Ronald Knox, the a early 20th century Catholic priest who was a translator and theologian who wrote theology for popular consumption. His target reader was you and me and other typical laymen and other priests. And his lesson today is about the true meaning of thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And his, his focus here is on the pinnacle of the temple. You remember the scene in the New Testament where our Lord is tempted by Satan who makes what had to have been the silliest proposal because he was making it to God because he himself did not understand who Jesus truly was, what the true meaning of being the son of God was. But he nevertheless makes a silly proposal. And here he, here our Lord tells him, you know, in response to that, you know, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And Monsignor Knox explains that to us. And in so doing, he also explains why the church, at least at that time in history, didn't get more involved in the affairs of the world. And it's an interesting thing to be to think about as he's talking about that, because now that the church gets very involved in the affairs of the world, allying itself with wicked people, his words ring especially true, tragically true. The pinnacle of the temple. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him upon the pointed roof of the temple and said to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written that he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest perhaps they, thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Our Lord stood on the pediment of the temple roof, with the accusing angel at his side. Both watched the stream of people that swept to and fro beneath them. How fascinating it is, looking down from a height, how fascinating and how dangerous. More especially when you look down, as you can. For instance, from the great tower at Blackpool, on swarming thousands of humankind. You see them like ants, infinitely small, infinitely remote from you. You see them apparently swayed, all unreasoning, by blind natural forces. Can there be free will in each unit of this undistinguished herd? Some such appearance the streets of Jerusalem will have presented that day, washed alternately by the leer of satanic malice and by the indulgent eyes of an all-embracing love. Men swarming everywhere, buying and selling, haggling, gesticulating, begging, praying, cursing. What a panorama. Watch the Pharisee going up the temple steps to pray, proudly withdrawing the hem of his garment from the mob. How ridiculous those airs of his look from up here. Watch that publican, bound, it seems, on the same errand. What prayers can he be meaning to offer, this nervous little wreck of a man, this crouching rent collector? And then the temptation comes. Can nothing be done to awaken these souls, so bent on worldly aims to eternal issues? Can nothing turn those earth-bound eyes heavenwards, startle and dazzle those dull hearts into faith? You could do it, urges the tempter, strong in the power of your forty days fast. You in whom the spirit has already triumphed over the body. Suppose you were to take one step forward. A single step would do it and let yourself fall. There would be a startled cry from beneath. 
Hands would point, and all those eyes in the square beneath would be turned up, in a moment to look, and then a miracle. Of course there would be a miracle. You are the Son of God, and God would not allow his own Son to be dashed to pieces by a fall. For his own honor, he would be bound to send his angels to bear you up. The crowds would find you uninjured, would learn to treat you as what you are, a messenger from heaven. Try it. Why not? Can it be that you doubt God's providence? Imagine that he could fail you. We must not misunderstand our Lord's answer. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Most of us have made the mistake before now, I suppose, of imagining that our Lord is saying that is claiming to be God and is rebuking the devil for subjecting him to temptation. That is not the sense at all. It does not mean you, Satan, do wrong to tempt Jesus of Nazareth. It means I, Jesus of Nazareth, should do wrong to tempt the Lord my God. To tempt him in what sense? To make trial of his love? To put his power to the test? By deliberately exposing myself to danger and defying him to neglect me? We should trust God to rescue us in his own time and in the way he sees best, from the difficulties which he has allowed to beset us. But to court danger wantonly and then expect providence to save you from the effects of your own rashness, that is quite a different thing. That is to force his hand to presume on his goodness. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I have said that the temptations of our Lord are the temptations of his church, that is, of her rulers who are not immune from error in the decisions which they must sometimes make to meet the practical needs of the day. In the very earliest times, when the sword of persecution hung over her, the church did make great demands, terrible demands, on the conscience of her subjects. She required them to confess their faith under the most infamous uh, torments. And if they failed at that test, she submitted them to a rigid ecclesiastical discipline at the very thought of which we, Christians of a softer age, must needs blush. But she did not tell them to go about publicly professing their faith, to hold their meetings in the market square, to await unmoved the coming of the persecutor. Our Lord himself had given directions that when persecuted in one city, Christians should flee to another, and the right of avoiding persecution where that was possible, was always recognized. Some of the greatest and boldest saints, St. Athanasius, for example, availed themselves of that liberty. There were heretics, the Donatist heretics, against whom St. Augustine wrote, who held that it was the duty of a Christian to court death, and the more fanatical of them, we are told, would sometimes throw themselves down over precipices, as if thereby they establish a claim to martyrdom. Against such extravagances, the church always made her protest. Taught by her master that we ought to pray not to be led into temptation, she would not put a harder yoke on her children than strict necessity demanded. Often in history... And in, not least in our own day, the church has been rebuked for her want of spirit in allowing the world's injustices to go unchallenged. Asked why she does not take a bolder line and interfere in secular quarrels, at whatever risk to her own popularity or influence. Those of us who are old enough to remember the Great War can remember how often we heard the, those reproaches on the lips of our fellow countrymen. Here were all these Catholics in Austria and in Germany, fighting quite plainly, or so it seemed to our friends, in an indefensible cause, making use of inhuman means to secure an unhallowed end. Why could not Pope Benedict XV interfere and bid them lay down their arms? Since the war, especially with the rise of the new tyrannies, frequent occasions have arisen upon which we Catholics have had to face this kind of criticism on the part of our well-meaning neighbors. They always assume that their own part point of view is the only conceivable point of view which an honest man could take. And doing the Holy Father the credit of believing him to be an honest man, they profess themselves pained and astonished at the pusillanimity which does not seek a direct issue on purely moral grounds, with this dictator or that. 
We are not concerned here with the aberrations in our neighbors' opinions. We have only to consider the general principle why the church is so slow, even when her own rights are concerned, to advise resistance to aggression, why she remains dumb sometimes when there seems to be legitimate ground for protest. The Holy Father will sometimes intervene in the cause of humanity. It happened during the war. It happened the other day over the, the targeting of towns in Spain. But he does not threaten. Why is that? The argument against us, after all, is a formidable one. The Catholic Church rules, after all, over a vast empire of human souls, widely different in their national temper and outlook. She has a key, then, such as no other religion has, to the world situation. She inspires a strong, a mysteriously strong, personal loyalty in her subjects. She has a hold, then, a lever to work by. And she claims, as no other religious body dares to claim, that her judgments are ratified in the world to come. If she told a body of Catholics, for example, to lay down their arms because their quarrel was unjust, she would excommunicate them if they disobeyed, make martyrs of them if they obeyed, and suffered for it. Is she not in a unique position where such interference is concerned? Precisely. She is in a unique position. And because she is in a unique position, she is reluctant to take advantage of it. Because her empire over souls is so vast, she knows that she retains some kind of hold, though it be a slight one, over many whose consciences are imperfectly formed because they are such a babble of nationalities. She knows that wide differences of tradition and outlook will divide them. Because she retains, in spite of everything, so powerful a hold over their affections, she shrinks from setting up in their mind a conflict of loyalties, church against class or religions against ethnicity, to confuse them and to hurry them into acting against their private conscience. Because her powers are so terrible as holding the keys of the kingdom of heaven, she is more afraid of the consequences to them of alienating from her membership than some voluntary association of Christians calling itself a church would be in the same circumstances. It is time that we return to the needs of the individual Christian life and considered how the example of our Lord Second's temptation bears upon them. We tempt providence when we go out of our way to expose ourselves to that which may be dangerous to faith or morals, when we lightly court the occasion of sin, and tell ourselves that it is all right. There can be no harm in it for us. There might be risk for others, but not for genuine Catholics, well-instructed Catholics like ourselves. And here again, let us recall the fact that our Lord allowed himself to be tempted at the prime of life and on the threshold of his career, partly at least because he wanted to set an example to those who are in the same position. And I hope such people do not need to be reminded that it is a very confused and very unsettled generation they have been born into. I will not say a generation worse altogether than those which went before it. It has its virtues as well as its vices. But it is a careless generation, which has grown up with very little attention to the advice of its elders, and to tell, tell the truth, somewhat in reaction from them. It has discarded conventions without replacing them by principles. It is apt to mistake excitement for happiness, passion for love, and eccentricity for genius. And it is very easy for Catholics, much easier than they know, to be carried away on the tide of it. He thinketh himself to stand, St. Paul warns us. Let him take heed lest he fall. He illustrates that by reminding us how the people of Israel, rescued from Egypt by their baptism in the Red Sea, houseled as if it were with the manna which accompanied their pilgrimage, through the desert nevertheless fell away into idolatry. And we, he implies, baptized Christians though we are, sustained by the Christian sacraments as we are, is there no danger for us? He that thinketh himself stand, let him take heed, lest he fall. Monsignor Knox gives us a good warning of what the true meaning here of lead us not into temptation truly is, and what the true meaning of thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Those two are linked 
<laughs> Although sometimes, of course, we lead ourselves into temptation, thinking that we are strong enough for it. I wonder how many people have gotten this wrong over the years, that the thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. How many truly faithful people have gotten that wrong over the years? Did you have it wrong before hearing Monsignor Knox explain this to us? If so, let me know in the comments, please. And like and subscribe if you have it. It does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps a lot, too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.